My text this Lord's Day is from Micah, chapter 6, verse 3. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. In a previous church that I pastored, there occurred an example of covenant love which I believe will remain in my memory for as long as I live. A young couple became members of the church and before long I learned that the wife had forsaken her marriage covenant to find her pleasure with another man. And over the next few months, I spoke with the young lady seeking to draw her back in repentance to her God and to her husband. She had no desire to return. Her mind seemed resistant to any appeals that, that I may have made. She was eventually excommunicated from the church as we pleaded with the Lord on that Lord's day with many tears to restore this marriage and to restore this loved one unto the Lord. The young husband, even though he had grounds for a divorce, continued to pray for his wife. He continued to plead with her to return. And God rewarded the faithful perseverance of this young man for one day I received a call from him asking me to call his wife to talk with her as she had moved to another state. What I heard on the other end of the line was a broken woman who in tears confessed her sin and desired to be restored to the Lord her God and to her husband. She moved back and was indeed restored to the Lord and was restored to her husband. And what a joyous time that was, that Lord's Day. A joyous time of weeping together as a congregation and celebration of the Lord's mercy. And this young wife before the congregation with her husband standing beside her confessed her sin and her gratitude to the covenant faithfulness of the Lord and to the covenant faithfulness of her husband. Dear ones, is there a motive more likely to crush the hardened heart of a sinful man than the covenant love of the Lord Jesus Christ? I know of none. I know and indeed believe that the holy reverential fear of God is necessary in the life of a Christian. And without it, we would never take God seriously in anything. I know and believe that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. But dear ones, when we know we have sinned against the eternal love of the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered hell on the cross, in order that we might be forever joined and united with Him in a marriage covenant. There is no greater shame that can smite the soul of a man than to have sinned against the covenant love 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, it is a great reproach to sin against the absolute authority of God Almighty. But oh, the brokenness and oh, the pain in the heart to understand that we have poured contempt upon the infinite love and mercy of Christ who purchased us from the slave market of sin with his own blood. This Lord's Day, as we continue our series through the prophecy of Micah, the Lord appeals by means of a covenant lawsuit to his people to return to him a faithful husband on the basis of his covenant faithfulness to them. The two main points from our text this Lord's Day are these. First of all, the Lord's announcement of the covenant lawsuit against his people, Micah 6, verses 1 and 2. And secondly, the Lord's heart opened to his people in the covenant lawsuit, Micah 6, verses 3 through 5. Let us consider then the first point, the Lord's announcement of the covenant lawsuit against his people. Micah, having declared to Israel and Judah the judgment of the Lord that would befall them for their obstinate idolatry and oppression of their neighbor, and having declared the future salvation and glory that awaited them now is given appeals by the Lord, appeals and overtures of grace from which only the most hardened creatures could shut their ears. Micah may have thought that his work as God's minister to Israel was finished now that he had shown them their sin, now that he had shown them the judgment that awaited them, now that he had even given them a hope of a future salvation and restoration. Micah may have thought, my work is now completed and finished. What more could the Lord say to this obstinate people? The Lord commands his minister to arise. He's not finished. Arise, he says to Micah in the first verse. That, and he commands him to contend. He commands him to argue the case of the Lord against his people as if he were in a court of law. Arise and contend. Now, according to the text, who are the witnesses who are called to hear the case that is presented. <clears throat> Strangely as it may seem, the witnesses who are called to hear the case are the mountains and the hills. In verses 1 and 2. The Lord says here, Contend thou before the mountains and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. You see, it is the mountains and the hills that are the witnesses to the controversy. Some have viewed the mountains and the hills in a figurative way, as if they represent the leaders of Israel, or Israel in some sense. But it is the mountains and the hills that are the witnesses to testify 
against Israel. The lawsuit is brought against his people. But the mountains and hills are, as it were, the jury. They are the witnesses to hear the case. Now, why has God commanded his prophet, Micah, to go and bring God's covenant lawsuit against Israel before the mountains? I think Calvin summarizes the reason very well in his commentary on this particular text when he says this, For there is here an implied comparison between the mountains and the Jews. As though the prophet said, the mountains are void of understanding and reason. And yet the Lord prefers to have them as witness of his cause rather than you who exceed in stupidity all the mountains and the rocks. You're more hardened than even the mountains around you, that you will not even listen to the Lord your God. You see, the Lord seeks to shame His people by this action in order to reveal to them the depth of their callousness and hardness of heart to which they had sank. Oh, dear ones, is there anything worse in our lives than a hardness of heart to the Lord our God? To shut our ears to the preaching of God's Word? To callous our hearts to the spiritual pricking and conviction of the Holy Spirit? This is a most dangerous position and situation for any of us to be in. And we may be assured that Christ will bring His bruising ministry, which we preached about a few weeks back. He will bring His bruising ministry into our lives in order to soften such hard hearts if we truly belong to Him. You see, if the gentleness of Christ, the gentleness of His love will not soften us, then the sternness of Christ's love will indeed be effectual in softening our hearts. Parents, We see in our children all too well how at times our loving kindness that's extended to them is rebuffed and we must then at that point take much more severe measures with them. And at times we want to just take them and shake them and say, why do you cause me? Why do you make me go to this extent with you? Why don't you receive the love... And the, and the gentleness that I give to you. Why do you force me to go to the more stern approach with you? Listen how I'm appealing to you in love merely to obey me. What parent hasn't known that particular experience in dealing with their own children? But you know, we as parents then turn around with God our Father and do the same thing with Him as our children do with us. We harden our hearts to His loving kindness, to His loving reproof, and He must then take the more stern approach with us as well. Dear ones, the Lord not only had a controversy with His people of old, Israel, as we read in Micah chapter 6, but He has a controversy with His church today. He argues 
the case in the form of a covenant lawsuit against his church today. For Christ's church today is rent into thousands, literally thousands of pieces by schisms, heresies, idolatry, covenant breaking, Sabbath breaking, lack of genuine affection for Christ and our fellow brethren. Anger and bitterness and unforgiveness reign within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ at times. And the saddest part about the whole situation is that the church of Jesus Christ all too often loves to have it so, as if this were the unity in truth and love of brethren of which Christ spoke in His prayer in John 17.21 where the Lord says that they all may be one as Thou, Father, art in Me and I in Thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. Not merely a oneness mystically and spiritually, but a oneness visibly as well. For if indeed the world will know that the Father has sent the Son, it won't know it by the mystical, mere mystical unity when we are rent into thousands of pieces as we presently are. There must be something tangible. There must be some work of the Spirit of Christ in our hearts and our lives in drawing His church to one doctrine and worship and government and stirring up our affections of love for one another. If the present divisions in the body of Christ stir up within us only vengeance, bitterness toward others, spiritual pride, yea, even a spirit of hatred for brethren, either inside or outside of the Puritan Reformed Church, then God has indeed a controversy with us as much as He has a controversy with any other. How does the love of Christ dwell in us, O people of God, if that is our attitude toward brethren, even even brethren who are walking disorderly, if that is our attitude? You remember... The spirit of vengeance was one that, that characterized Jonah, one that characterized James and John. The Lord condemns the spirit of vengeance within His people. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay, God says. You see, dear ones, we cannot pray, truly pray David's prayer In Psalm 35, verse 26, which says, Let them be ashamed and brought to confusion together that rejoice at mine hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor that magnify themselves against me. We cannot pray that prayer until we have known the humility, the grief, and the pity of David that we find in Psalm 35. Verses 11 through 14, just go up or back a little ways in that chapter where David says this first about those who opposed him. False witnesses did rise up. They did lay to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. 
I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer returned into mine own bosom. I behaved myself as though he had been my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one that mourneth for his mother. When we can act that way, then we're ready to pray the prayer that we read in Psalm 35, verse 26, about confounding our enemies. Then we will pray that prayer with tears in our eyes. Then we will pray that prayer with grief, mourning, and pity in our souls. Then God will hear our prayer and answer our prayer. But not until then. If we are not brought by the Spirit of God to the point of sincere sorrow, weeping, yea, even fasting and pity over these divisions within the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, are not our hearts like those of Israel of old? Where there is a division in the body of Christ, and even where that division is justified, if we do not humbly seek with everything that is within us, to heal that division by fervent prayer, by periods of fasting, by meekly applying the Word of God, and by demonstrating an unfeigned love for the brethren, then our hearts have become like the mountains and the hills before which Micah brought God's covenant lawsuit. And so I appeal to you, dear brethren, strive for purity within the church but also strive for the peace and the unity of the church with the same steadfast effort. Yes, we covet and pray for a covenanted uniformity throughout the whole world, but we must not only bring the truth in one hand, but in the other hand we must bring an unfeigned love for our brethren before such a covenanted uniformity will be realized. Which brings us to the second main point. The Lord's heart opened to His people in the covenant lawsuit. Consider what the Lord says through Micah in verses 3 through 5. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shatim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord." In the remaining three verses of our text, we see the loving kindness of the Lord displayed to His people, even when He must reluctantly, though necessarily, bring His covenant lawsuit against them. The Lord begins this section with a most affectionate appeal. O oh, my people! Although rebellious, although hardened to the voice of the Lord, he yet comes to Israel pleading with her as a faithful husband to an unfaithful wife. Although the Lord is issuing 
to unfaithful Israel a covenant lawsuit charging her with having been unfaithful and having broken the marriage covenant. Yet he doesn't forget. He always remembers his covenant that he has made with her. He continues to remember his covenant. Though he may abandon her for a time, though he may discipline her, though he may lead her into various trials, yet he remembers his covenant. And he is faithful to his covenant. Although the marriage covenant, dear ones, between human beings may be dissolved upon the grounds of adultery or willful desertion that cannot be remedied, the marriage covenant between God and his people cannot be utterly dissolved. For God in his covenant faithfulness and sovereign power will, will restore his unfaithful wife again unto himself. As Paul says in Romans 11.29, For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Thus the Lord will do so. He will do so. He will be faithful so as to demonstrate our own callousness of heart. To show us where the problem really lies. It's not with others so much as it is with us. It's not with God, it's with us. We must begin with ourselves and with our own sins. And God shows His faithfulness so as to reveal to us our own utter unworthiness and His undeserved grace and His undeserved mercy. Dear ones, if the Lord has His people to call out of even the whore of Babylon, that is the Romish church as we find in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. Come out, of ye, uh, come out of her, ye my people, the Lord says. If God has His people, His people in there, that He calls them out, then we also ought to appeal to all His people to come out of unfaithful churches which have become in various ways daughters of the whore through their heresy, their idolatry, their covenant breaking. And we ought to appeal to them as God does here in Micah 6.3. Oh, my people. We ought to be saying, Oh, my brethren, come out of her. And how our communication, dear ones, with defecting, backsliding brethren should be characterized by that attitude. Oh, my brethren. How our hearts should break to speak in that manner to our brethren. Oh, my brethren. Can you not see the loving condescension of the Lord in Micah chapter 6, verse 3, when he says, O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. The condescension of the Lord is absolutely amazing. He entreats His people here to tell Him where He has mistreated them, where He has failed them, where He has been in any way unfaithful to them. The Almighty God, one who is holy in every way, appeals to His people in this manner. Now, if the Lord Himself can appeal 
and can plead with his people to return to him on the basis of this covenant faithfulness and love. If the Lord himself, who only and always does that which is righteous and holy and good, even when he carries his people through the desolate wilderness of deprivation of some kind, even when he carries his people into the tempestuous storm, where it appears that they will certainly perish. And even when the Lord carries them into and through the fiery furnace of persecution, even then, if the good and holy one can ask the question, what have I done unto thee? How much more each of us who are yet plagued by pride and self-conceit, how much more we should begin by asking that question where there is a problem in our marriage, where there is a problem in our family, where there is a problem in our church. How much more we should begin by asking the question sincerely and earnestly, what have I done unto thee? What have I done unto thee? And to mean it. Not just to be a rhetorical question. We're not, we're not sinless as God is. Jesus made it clear, dear ones, that each of us ought not to begin with the faults of others, but rather to begin by removing the beam out of our own eye so that we can see more clearly how to help our brother remove the moat, the speck that is in his eye. Matthew 7, 5. Begin with yourselves. What have I done unto thee? Dear ones, have we not realized the peace and unity in marriage, family, and church because we have been unwilling to ask that question? Have we been unable to reach that place of unity in all of these God-ordained institutions because we have been unwilling to begin there? That God grant us the grace to begin there. What have I done unto thee? And let us be willing to take all of the shots necessary to deal with our own sin, our own failures, our own faults, to humble ourselves for the sake of unity, for the sake of peace. Because, you see, none of the issues of doctrine and worship will ever get, will never be able to address those issues with people if we don't begin with What is it that I am doing in my own life that offends you? What can I do to remove that offense so we can talk about these other matters? There is nothing, I'm convinced, that reveals so clearly the heinousness of our sinful pride and stubbornness of our willful way than when Christ sends us messages of love and invitations, of mercy by His Word, by His Spirit, by His people. And rather than softening our hearts, those messages of love end up hardening our hearts, making us more angry, causing us to become more bitter and resentful. You know, here is a way to determine what is really in a man's heart. What is really in our own heart? 
How does one respond to the overtures of others that are offered in loving kindness? How does one respond to that? How does one respond to overtures of wanting to deal with differences between one another, offenses that have been committed? Is he hardened or is he softened? Is he made proud or is he humbled? Is he angered or is he ashamed? Dear ones, this not only applies to those who need the gospel of salvation, but it applies to each of us who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. When there has been a falling out between yourself and a brother, or between yourself and a sister, do you become indignant? angry and bitter at invitations to be reconciled? What, is it, what does he think he's doing? I'm not going to so easily just forget that and pass that by. Is that more our response than opening our arms and saying, yes, I want to be reconciled. What have I done against thee? But dear ones, when we see such a reaction of anger in our own souls to invitations that are offered in humility and kindness, how we should cast ourselves at that point upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue us from such pride and anger and unforgiveness and unthankfulness. When the kindness of a brother or sister is like heaping coals of fire upon our head, then we have become overcome with evil rather than overcoming evil with good. The root problem, dear ones, in that person's life who responds in that way to overtures of grace and mercy and loving kindness with anger the problem in that person's life is that the greater appeals of the Lord Jesus Christ, appeals of love and mercy, have been scorned in that person's life first. So naturally, the lesser appeals from a husband or wife, from a brother or sister in Christ, will likewise be scorned and rebuffed. Beloved, Today, harden not your hearts to God's invitations of mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not be like Cain. God came to Cain when he was angry that God did not accept his sacrifice. God came came to him and said, Why are you angry? Why are you upset? God reasoned with him. If you do well, won't it go well with you? But he was determined even at the invitations of God's mercy and grace extended to him, he was determined to continue in his anger and it led to murdering his brother. And finally, in our text, the Lord summarizes for his people some very specific examples of his covenant faithfulness to them. In verses 4 and 5, The Lord says, For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants and sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember 
Now what Balak king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Sheptim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. How quick we are, dear ones, to recount. And how good our memories are when it comes to the trials, hardships, mistreatment of others that we've received and experienced. We have, it seems, uh, an unforgettable memory when it comes to how we've been mistreated by others. How others have, have unjustly used us. But we're so quick to forget the loving kindness of God and the loving kindness of others. Very quick to forget that. We seem to have, in effect, selective memories and conveniently forget all of these other kindnesses shown to us. If we would train ourselves to remember the mercies of God and the loving kindness of the brethren to us in times past, our indignation and vengeance might be more easily tempered. You see, addressing problems, mark it down, addressing problems that have occurred between two people, whether it's in a marriage or in a church, addressing problems this way is always a question of perspective. Will you look at a problem that you have with another only in the light of the immediate offense? Is that the only consideration that you will bring to bear in that situation? Or will you also take into consideration, even if you have been offended, and unjustly so, even if you have been, will you also take into consideration the many acts of kindness and mercy that have been shown to you as well? A question of perspective. The Lord, from our text, says, in effect, to His people, focus on what I have done for you. Remember the mercies that I have shown unto you in times past, O Israel, my people. Consider how I have been ever so faithful as a husband to you, though you have shown complete unfaithfulness to me. I have not forsaken you utterly. You still are my wife. The Lord redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt, first of all. Perhaps the greatest demonstration of God's power and mercy in the life of Israel throughout the Old Testament is an appeal continuously to God's deliverance of His people from Egypt. What is the greatest demonstration of Christ's power and mercy in your life? Not deliverance from political slavery. Not deliverance from prison in some human form, material form. The greatest demonstration of God's power and mercy and grace in your life is deliverance from the slave market of sin and the master that owns you even Satan at one time, 
For that is what is typified by the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. That was their slave market. That was where they were held in bondage. But God's people have been delivered from the slave market of sin. They have been set free from their former master. They have been brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been delivered from, from bondage to sin. From the curse of the law so that the law no longer condemns them and sentences them to hell. They've been delivered from the sting of death. They've been led through the death of the Red Sea and into the life of the Promised Land through their leader, the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you, dear ones, have you wandered? Have you wandered in apathy and complacency from the Lord your God? Have you become hardened in some sin toward God or toward others? I submit to you that if you have, it's because you have forgotten what you were redeemed from. You have forgotten the covenant faithfulness of the Lord your God. And to simply take the time to reflect on, to meditate upon God's faithfulness to you will bring you to the point where you humble yourselves and say, Lord, I have been an ungrateful child. I have shown contempt for the blood of Christ. In every way, I deserve your judgment, condemnation upon my life. But you have been ever so faithful, ever so, so faithful in your covenant promises unto me. The second thing the Lord provided for His people in His faithfulness in demonstrating to them how faithful He was to them is that He provided faithful shepherds. Not perfect shepherds, but faithful shepherds in Moses and Aaron and even a faithful prophetess for the women in the person of Miriam. Dear ones, are you able to give thanks for the faithful elders? Not perfect elders, but faithful elders that God has given to you in order to lead you. Are you able to and do you do so? Do you love your elders in the Lord or do you merely just put up with them? Do you fervently pray for their strength and for humility in their lives, for knowledge and wisdom and love to be exhibited in and through them? Do you seek, dear ones, to lift up the arms of the elders by encouraging them, helping in any way you can? Or do you leave it to everybody else say, that's really not a job I care to do. I'll let somebody else do it. Dear ones, one of the greatest mercies God gives to His people is a faithful ministry. Through faithful ruling elders and teaching elders, do not despise the good gifts, the covenant faithfulness of the Lord your God unto you. The third thing that the Lord brings to the attention of Israel in order to show His covenant faithfulness. The Lord preserved His people even from false 
prophets like Balaam who sought the destruction of his people and from, from kings and princes who, did, who sought to destroy Israel like Balak. God preserved and protected his people through all of these events. Have you praised the living God for preserving you from various false prophets that are running around in the world, false teachers that are running rampant in the church today? Have you praised and given thanks to the Lord for His covenant faithfulness in your life and keeping you, preserving you? Why aren't you following them like the rest of the multitudes? Is it not only for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, His covenant love and faithfulness unto you, that He has opened your eyes to see and to love the truth? And then, finally, in this last section, the Lord carried His people from their very lowest point when they joined with the Moabites in their idolatry and fornicating feasts there in Shittim. He did not forsake them at that particular point. Even when they were at their worst, their most desperate point of unfaithfulness, He did not leave them and abandon them utterly. He did not forsake them utterly. But He brought them from Shittim and brought them through the Jordan River to renew covenant with him at Gilgal, on the other side, on, on the side of Jordan, of the promised land, by means of his covenant seals of circumcision and the Passover. He renewed his covenant with his people. He carried them from the worst. He was faithful to, for, uh, unto them all the way and brought them to the point where he gave them a willing heart, where he renewed their faith. In Him. All by His sovereign grace, He gave them these rich gifts, showing to them again and again, in spite of their unfaithfulness in every way, He had ever been a faithful husband to them. And He gave to them again the seals of His covenant, like a ring, a wedding ring, seals that covenant testifies of that covenant that was made. So the Lord testified again by renewing the covenant of circumcision with His people and giving to them the seal of the Passover that they were His people. And the Lord does renew His covenant seals with us through the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper Those of you, dear ones, who are afar off this day from the Lord, I invite you, come unto Him and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. He'll not turn you away. He's never turned one away who came unto Him, who earnestly came unto Him. He's received every single one. You won't be the first one that He turns away. Come unto Him if you are far from the Lord today. Those of you who are near unto Christ, you have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but your love has grown cold. You have allowed bitterness to take root in your life. You have nursed a secret sin in your life in some way. 
You have been unthankful for the mercies of the Lord your God. You have gone merely through the motions of worship and motions of your Christian life. You are discouraged today, perhaps. You are cast down. I invite, in fact, the Lord Jesus, I as His ambassador, invite you to come unto Him. Come one and come all. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're young, whether you're still a child under your parents' roof, come. Whether you're an adult, come unto Christ. We all have need to come to Christ today. None of us is so self-sufficient that we can say, I don't need Christ today. Come in your heart unto the Lord Jesus Christ. His mercy is greater than all of your sin. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, with great joy, we come unto Thee as Thy people this day, celebrating Thy mercy and Thy grace, humbling ourselves before Thee for Thy faithfulness, Thy covenant faithfulness unto us, for Thy righteousness endures forever. Thou wilt be forever true and faithful to Thy promises. O Lord our God, we pray that Thou would bless Thy people this day with willing hearts, hearts that are renewed in faith to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to take up the cross of Christ, to be willing to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to be willing to suffer shame for the name of Christ. We ask our Father that Thou would minister to each of our families, O Lord, today, to the children, that Thou would stir up faith in their hearts, cause them to be faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for parents that, God, Thou would cause parents to walk in all faithfulness before Thee, that husbands would not offend their wives, that wives would not offend their husbands, that we would not set stumbling blocks before our children, O God but rather stepping stones unto the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask our God that Thou would take the words that have been spoken this day from Thy holy word, that Thou would seal them to our own hearts, cause them to bear fruit. We ask all of these things, O Lord, trusting in our Savior who is ever faithful. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at 
swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.